Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. I grew up in a family that didn't have much, um, so if I wanted something, I had to make it. Valentina Milanova is founder and CEO of UK-based Day, a CBD tampon company who are on a mission to normalize the conversation around female reproductive health. Her story is both fascinating as well as impressive, as she's taking on the challenges of setting up physical manufacturing in the UK, the legal ambiguity of a fast-changing cannabis market, as well as being a sole female founder. Enjoy. Valentina, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, really keen to hear your story around day. Mm. And um, why don't we start with just an introduction to who you are and a little bit about what you're trying to trying to do with day. Cool. Thanks so much for having us. We're always very excited when people recognize CBD and tampons. Um, so I'm Valentina. I'm the founder of Day. A year ago, I quit my full-time job in early-stage startup investing and raised the pre-seed round for the company, which was a um, little further from an idea at that stage in September last year. Um, I had some How initial... How much was your raise? Um, the pre-seed one was small, uh, around a million. Um, and that was very helpfully led by Index Ventures um, and Kindred participated as well. Um, and with the first money into the company, I was able to start hiring people. So moving from being a single woman band to um, having a great team around me with people that genuinely cared uh, about what they was building and wanted to bring our mission further. Um, and in March this year, we raised a follow-on round from Costa Ventures in San Francisco. Costa Ventures is a very interesting investor because they primarily invest in companies that have IP backing and research behind them. And the Costa portfolio founders are the wildest dreamers and thinkers I've ever met. The Costa CEO Summit was such a collection of kind of outcasts and people doing alternative forms of misfits. air travel. Hmm? Misfits. Misfits, yeah. Um, yeah, and in, in June this year was when we really realized we need to start growing the team a little bit faster than we had been until then. So we transitioned from having six people to 22 um, over the course of the summer. Wow. Um, and now we're split between design engineering. We build our own machines at day to make our products, operations and supply chain, um, brand and growth, and digital products. We like to think of Day as a platform for women's health altogether, rather than just a tampon business. Um, and we build digital products to go alongside the physical ones. Great. And there's a load I want to cover, but let's start with the inception. And what was that problem you wanted to fix or that you know, itch you wanted to scratch? I always wondered why tampons were such a an imaginative product. Um, imaginative? Unimaginative. Oh, unimaginative. Yeah. I always wondered why 
tampons aren't better or different, why every tampon brand sold the same looking uh, product that was composed of the exact same materials. And I also always, as a, since I had my first period, always suffered from really bad period cramps. So I was having the ideas about day in the back of my mind since a very kind of early age. And then when I was um, finishing my MBA, I had to come up with a business idea that was going to be socially impactful. So I started researching industrial hemp, which is a plant that has a really good environmental profile and it's very convenient in the sense that it has fibers that are more absorbent than cotton and the flower of the industrial hemp plant has an extract which we know from clinical studies is anti-inflammatory and people find it pain relieving. Um, so I, when I was reading about industrial hemp I just had this idea of combining its two properties having the more absorbent fibers with the pain relieving oil in one making it into one pain relieving tampon um, and I started trying to manufacture my product um, and I understood the many inefficiencies that exist in tampon manufacturing today as well as the monopoly that exists in tampon manufacturing. It's very similar to the situation in the eyewear market where you have one big player called Luxotica that owns all of the manufacturing for all kinds of eyewear. So whether it's Chanel, Ray-Ban, Burberry, they're all manufactured in the same factory. In the same way, whether it's a Kimberly Clark, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, tampon, they're all manufactured in the same facility on the same machines. Um, Where is that? That's in Europe. Actually, tampons that are sold in America are made in Europe. Most of the tampon manufacturing really? is centered in Europe. Um, and that helped me appreciate the inefficiencies that exist in the tampon manufacturing space, but also the wider inefficiencies that exist in the way that products for women are designed and tested when I was having all of my tampon manufacturing meetings, I never once met a woman in any of them, apart from the woman that was bringing in the teas and coffees um, for, for the meeting. So that got me thinking about the women's health industry as a whole and why women's health research is so underfunded and underappreciated in the same way that tampons are massively under underfunded, overlooked product category. Um, and just kind of ha started having one idea after the other for what they could be. And right now we're starting with the redesigned tampon, using the tampon as a means to administer pain relief, but moving on to becoming just this bigger platform for women's health, focusing on the women that are not currently interested in becoming pregnant. So there's a lot on the market for fertility and pregnancy and what to do after you've had a baby. But there's, in women's health, a very small focus on how to look after your health, reproductive health, sexual health, just female health, wellness, all together in the years before you want to have a baby. And that's where we come in um, as a company. Great. And tell me a little bit about the size of the business so far. Um, so 22 people in the business right now, split between those kind of main areas that I mentioned, design engineering, clinical and regulatory, supply chain and operations, digital products, uh, brand and growth. Um, and one tool that we found very successful for helping grow our audience, helping grow our waiting list, the day tampon is not available for everyone to purchase now, it's still on a waiting list basis because we do manufacturing in-house and it takes a while before we can scale machines and before we can scale the 
production setup. Um, but until we are able to service everyone that we want to service and everyone that wants to buy the day products, we thought that we could service our community, our waitlisters by providing really high quality, utilitarian, impactful content on women's health. So we have a editorial platform called Vitals, which you can find on our website, yourday.com, um, which has content from our content editor, Liv, who used to be a sexual wellness writer for Refinery29 and um, Dazed. She writes so beautifully and so intelligently about the women's health experience and women's health research, just bridging all of these gaps that exist in our knowledge. Um, and at the same time, Vitals is a way for us to engage with our community. They can leave, they can answer polls at the end of each article. Um, they can share individual quotes from the articles. Um, they can listen to Vitals as well on audio. So that's our way to keep our audience engaged and interested in what we're doing until we're ready to launch the product. And the second thing that we're doing for growth are, it's very unscalable. It's every VC's worst nightmare but we're doing a lot of events, um, meeting our community in real life. We have three main ways of doing it. The first one is called Health for Breakfast. It's an event in which we go and we meet our target consumer, the millennial working woman, where she is at work. So we go to places like Facebook and Silicon Valley Bank and we give a presentation on a hot topic in women's health, followed by 20 minutes of people sharing their own health stories between each other and forming a community and 20 minutes of questions and answers with a doctor. So saving people the trip to a GP and saving people a Google search that inevitably leads to you have cancer. Um, so that's one way in which we engage our community. And the second way is we have day town halls, which are for our Instagram community to come and meet us in real life and see the manufacturing space we have, the office space that we have, and just hear lifting the curtain behind what building the company day means and what it is. Um, and the third thing is our creative board dinners. Um, we have, we're very fortunate to have a very good community of entrepreneurs that have built great brands and great companies that come and critique our messaging and packaging and how we're presenting ourselves to the world. We have this once every two months as a sit down dinner. Right. Yeah. So you've been busy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So pr product is a market, but yeah. you're, you're limiting it, supply in terms of yes. um, the, the waiting list. Yes, so we, we refer to our waiting list as our daybreakers, our daybreaker community. And those are the first people that discovered they and that really believed in the product and kind of followed our journey as we were building the team and setting up the initial manufacturing. Um, so they get the first early access to the first boxes to leave our pilot manufacturing setup. Um, and they've also made the commitment to give us really extensive feedback. Um, so we really like to think of our users as true stakeholders in the business. And we really want to build products alongside our users. So whenever they receive a day box, um, they answer a questionnaire and then we have a, a either an in-person or a phone interview with them, which lasts about 45 minutes. And we question everything from the product performance to the packaging, to the delivery experience, everything and anything. And then we make very quick changes uh, to the product, to the digital experience, to serve our community and our users in the best possible way. And also to make sure that when we do launch at scale, we've launched with the most optimized product possible. Sure. And how is, so how long, how long have they had product? Um, we launched our first boxes in August. Okay. 
Yeah. And feedback good? So far, feedback is really exciting. So the vibe in the office these days is really good because we've all been working for about a year towards this big lofty goal of bringing a pain relieving tampon to market. And now it's real. And now people are sending us like these super excited emails saying, I completely forgot I was on my period. I used to have to take a whole box of painkillers during my period. And now I didn't even feel anything at all. Can you please introduce a push notification that reminds me to change my tampon because I forgot to change my tampon. It's like this super cool feedback from people that have just struggled with period pain for a long time or struggled with bad period care for a long time. That really kind of brings it home and makes the whole struggle and pain that is building a company worth it. That must be very rewarding. It's very cool. <laughs> Any negatives in that? Um, so pricing is a very big point for us. Um, what is the price point? So we have a fully transparent pricing model in which you can see exactly what our profit margin is on our website. We took that concept from Everlane and applied it to the way that we operate and the way that we do pricing. You can see everything um, that's included in our supply chain, in our manufacturing process. You can see all of the things that we're doing with the product that make it more expensive than traditional tampon brands. Um, and right now a box of what we call naked tampons, so the tampons that don't have CBD infused into them costs about seven pounds and a box of uh, CBD infused tampons depending on the number of CBD infused tampons that you choose costs between 12 and 16 pounds um, as part of a monthly subscription which is quite different from what people are used to um, so a box of organic tampons costs about six pounds and a box of Nurofen if you want to use that for pain relief costs about four to five pounds um, so it is more expensive than what people are used to paying, but <clears throat> we believe that by introducing this level of transparency and kind of lifting the veil on the industry and what we think hasn't been done right so far, so how much it costs to have compostable packaging and how much it costs to have CO2 offset deliveries and how much it costs to have tampons manufactured in a clean room and sanitized, um, we believe that our users will understand the added value that comes with the premium price product sure and like you pay 40 pounds a month for a face cream we, we we need to reset that care a little bit more about what we place in our bodies apart from just what we place on our skin yeah sure and touching on the subscription model how important is that is, is that as, as part of the offer yeah, so we wanted to be as flexible as possible with the subscription model because women have varying period lengths um, and varying varying cycle lengths. So we wanted to make sure we're accommodating for all kinds of conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which may mess up the frequency of your cycle. Um, so people on our website can choose whether they want to get the day box every 14 days or every 54 days, completely depending on their cycle. They can choose the number of tampons that they put in a box, the combination between CBD and naked, depending on their level of pain that they experience. Um, and in general, we think that the subscription model fits our business proposition because 75% of women in the UK don't buy tampons proactively. They buy tampons on the first day of their period when they're sitting in the office. They've just had their period. Maybe they stain their underwear or their trousers and then they have to 
run to the corner store and awkwardly buy tampons. Um, it's very convenient to have tampons delivered right before you need them, so in sync with your period, two or three days before you're about to get your period, so that they're on top of your mind. You can just put them in your purse, take them with you, um, and not have to have an awkward walk to the corner store. Sure. And uh, so it's, it's simplifying that process, yeah. making it easier from both the... Uh, the 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 is is there inconvenience? I guess there is a lot of inconvenience in terms of that process of remembering. Your, yeah, your period always seems to understanding what exactly what you need and when. Yeah, your period always seems to come as a surprise, even though you get it almost every. I mean, most women get it every month, um, and yet most of us are surprised when it comes. So it's nice to be prepared for that surprise. Sure. Want to touch on CBD mm-hmm. and. Firstly, your uh, your thoughts on it, on it, um, and specifically in your product and its effectiveness. Uh, and then, secondly, as you know, the industry as a lot at large, uh, because yeah. there is a lot of CBD yeah. infused. It's a cowboy um, industry, a hundred percent, and that we find that very detrimental. So, the fact that most CBD products on the market right now. Um, don't have any clinical validation, don't do lab testing, have not conducted any studies whatsoever on their product and CBD is added to everything from cocktails to like dry shampoo. Um, The science of cannabinoids is not really studied as well as it should be by people that bring CBD products to market most of the time. So the approach we have taken is just polar opposite. Um, So we've done every form of uh, lab, preclinical and clinical validation of the tampon, we can safely say that we are the most tested tampon um, just ever in history. We've done two levels of open label uh, human studies with 120 volunteers. We're now halfway through a double-blinded crossover randomized trial multi-center. That's the golden standard in clinical trials. Um, We've done um, studies on the impact of CBD on the vaginal microbiome, um, studies of the impact of CBD on irritation um, in the vaginal canal. We've tested the product for microbial contamination, um, pesticide contamination. We batch test every single delivery of CBD that we get into day headquarters. Um, and we also have an exclusivity agreement with our CBD supplier, which allows us to make sure that we get the same consistent quality every single time. And that we get to grow with our supplier and we get to build a very long, trusted relationship. And another thing that we're doing is we're taking a very proactive approach when it comes to how we deal with regulators. Um, We were selected by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in America, to be part of a group of organizations that inform the FDA's policies on CBD. They use us as an example of a company that's self-regulating in its supply chain, in its manufacturing standards, in the way that it clinically validates its products. Um, And even though our tampons are not classified as medical devices in Europe, um, we spoke to the European Medicines Agency and tampons are not classified as medical devices in in Europe, we self-regulate as a medical device. They are, are, but the standards are still lower than what we think they should be in terms of manufacturing, in terms of testing, in terms of batch testing every 
batch of products. So in, in the US, you only have to test your product once for microbial contamination, and that's it when you get your FDA approval. There's no requirement to <clears throat> continuously test your product for microbial contamination for every single batch. Um, same for absorbency, fiber loss, etc. Um, so what we do is we just batch test every every single batch that we make is then has a bunch of samples from a taken and sent to a lab. Um, and even though, as I said, the European Medicines Agency does not consider us a medical device, we're self-regulating as a medical device. Um, and CBD interest industry at large, as you said, it's. I think the, it's overhyped. There's 100%. a lot of there's a lot of cowboys yeah. out there, and you know, just maybe get your thoughts on, you know, the broader industry where it currently is, and you know where it's going to go. Um, I think there's so much potential in CBD. We've seen so much anecdotal evidence, uh, particularly when it comes to gynecological pain, uh, with patients with endometriosis, patients with vaginismus that are reporting real levels of pain relief that they haven't been able to experience on the worst form of opioids. Um, I think may, the main issues in the CBD industry is that um, right now it's dominated by a bunch of people who are there to make a quick buck um, and don't really care about regulations, don't really care about consumer safety, and also don't have the internal know-how to know how to care about consumer safety. It, it took us a year to figure out the right level of clinical validation that we needed to do, the right level of testing, just to 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 set up our clean room setup and the 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 terms of operation for our clean room manufacturing and finding the right parts for all of our machines so that they're all stainless steel and antimicrobial, etc. Um, those things take time, and when you're under pressure to launch quickly and make a quick buck. Um, you tend to neglect them. And I also think that regulators are really frustrated with the CBD industry, probably rightfully, because it's been very, like, it's been underregulated because regulators have kind of had their heads in the sand and just pretended that CBD doesn't exist. People are not interested in it. People are not buying CBD. It's illegal. Just ignore it. It's not happening. But there's a strong consumer interest for CBD, and that makes sense. It helps people sleep. Um, there's a study that just came out from uh, an American independent consumer research group which said 84% um, of Americans that have tried CBD have been satisfied with the effects. So there's clearly something there that's helping people deal with joint pain, anxiety, sleep deprivation, etc. Um, but because there's such a strong commercial interest in the, in in the industry, Providers of CBD don't care about concentration. They don't care about the dose. Um, that they're like just in the same way that one eighteenth of an aspirin is not going to stop your headache. If you take ten milligrams of CBD in a drink, it's not going to do anything. It's too small of a dose um, to to have an impact on the human body. Yeah. So that's the issue with most CBD products today. That the concentration so is what low. Is the, what is the dose and? In, in the day products? 150 milligrams of full-spectrum THC-free pharmaceutical-grade CBD. Okay, that's quite a lot. Yeah, that's what you need to experience an effect. Yeah. And because our product is 100% THC-free, the supplier that we're working with um, has developed a patented technology for extracting CBD while we, mm, maintaining the other beneficial cannabinoids that yeah. work together in an entourage effect with CBD, like CBN and CBG. And CBA, um, 
we're able to provide a product that's safe to, to use by children, safe to use by people who are not interested in the effects of THC. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't get too high. Yeah, which is more of a THC. Yeah, so CBD uh, does not get you high. It's the THC that gets you high. Yeah, for sure. Coming back to your rationale, your reason of bringing manufacturing to London, hmm. is this one part of the quality control that you wanted to be close it's, to home? Yeah, it started as quality control. Um, it started as two things, really. Because uh, that surely is not an obvious decision. <laughs> no. To set up <laughs> It's also Bermondsey. a very difficult decision to justify to your board, <laughs> bringing manufacturing in-house. Um, quality control was one, but also delivering on the product innovation promise that they holds. We couldn't do that with existing machines. The, the product that we're bringing to market is genuinely differentiated, and we had to bring so you're our literally own. making machines yeah, to make We tampons. literally have a brilliant head of design engineering called Alex, who runs a design engineering team and makes parts in an R&D space and then assembles these parts into machine prototypes and then takes these machine prototypes and makes them into full-blown actual machines that work in a clinical setting. Sorry, in a pharmaceutical setting, pharmaceutical-grade setting. That's great. Yeah. Hence the limitation of supply. Hence the limitation of supply, yeah. Okay. So how does that scale? Um, so we just hired a really great head of factory operations who will jo be joining us in March um, next year. And over the course of the next 12 months, we'll start the day factory, um, which we're also hoping to keep in London. Um, and the day factory will take the day pilot manufacturing facility, which we have right now in the biscuit factory, and translate it into full-scale, full-blown factory operation that's able to service not just our waiting list in London, but consumers across Europe and across America. And what is your current capacity? Currently, we can service up to 10,000 monthly subscribers. Okay. And then that's going to 10x when you... More than 10x. Yeah. Mm, quite more than 10x. Right. Yeah. A bit about your background. Hmm? What... Just entrepreneurial spirit and attitude is there a is there a source is this something that you always had inside you in terms of wanting to be you know a, a single founder i didn't i didn't want to be a single founder i really wanted a co-founder <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure anybody wanted one. to be intentionally <laughs> i wanted didn't to be find a one founder. no i don't think anyone sets out to be a single founder it's very tough being a single founder i really understand why some investors don't invest in single founders as a rule like you need to really love your company and see it as like your life's work to be a single founder because everything falls on you and it's never a day off and it never quiets down. Um, I feel you. But I love it. <laughs> I'm a single founder yeah. too. It's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> the amount of responsibility. Anyway. Um, but where did that come from? Background. Where I think it's just was this from a young age? Yeah, you always had that it, ambition? I think it's how I was raised. I, I so I never wanted to be a founder when I was growing up. I wanted to be an opera singer, and then I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I wanted to be like uh, just someone that helps companies as they grow. I wanted to be maybe working in the VC industry. I thought that was interesting because you got to see so many different ideas and the people that were executing on these ideas, but 
I never thought to myself, oh my God, can't wait to be a founder. It's going to be so great. Um, I just felt really compelled to build this business. And um, 2017 and 2018 were the years in which I was working on the concept of day while having a full-time job. Um, Where and, was that? Uh, I was working in a venture building studio in London. Um, and I was using like the really early morning slots and the late evening slots to just like build out the idea and spend time in Planet Organic where there's an organic tampon shelf and you can just creepily walk around it and stop people as they're buying tampons and ask them lots of questions. You did that? Yeah, yeah, all the time, every weekend. And now we were having conversations. Did you get kicked out? Also, there was a guy there who was a security guy. I, his name was Vlad, I think. I may be wrong. But um, I would spend every weekend there. And initially, I think he first thought I was trying to steal because he would circle me a lot. Um, and then he thought I was just like some crazy person. Um, and then we became friends. That's good. <laughs> In the end, yeah. Uh, he was very nice. Um, I told so him about insight, my company. That insight stalking shoppers in Planet Organic. Yeah, that was very helpful. So um, maybe the Planet Organic demographic, but I realized it's not primarily, I mean, it's primarily women that buy tampons, but about 40% of people that buy tampons are actually men. So husbands fathers grandfathers like it's not just women that buy tampons so that was one very interesting insight that i had um and then nine out of ten of the women that i was interviewing in planet organic said that they were having period cramps and um they had all of these subpar ways of dealing with period, period cramps which were you know taking a hot bath and taking a day off work or taking lots of painkillers to the point where your stomach health suffers. And um, I just thought to myself, surely there's like, surely there's a better way. Um, yeah. What was I saying? How? Uh -huh. Okay, so that's how I had the two years of building day initially. Um, just using my salary as a subsidy, using credit cards here and there to buy like the initial raw materials because starting a physical business is expensive it's not like starting a like a software business where you just get together with your friends and you start coding like you have actual real expenses for hard. raw materials um hardware is hard uh but I, when i was growing up i always had like whenever i would go to a restaurant or a cafe or just have any interaction with the business i always thought to myself uh this could have been done better like and the customer experience really wasn't that great or the product could have been better in this or in that way. So I was always like thinking about how things could be better in general. Um, and then when I was growing up, um, I grew up in Bulgaria. Uh, I grew up in a family that didn't have much. Um, so if I wanted something, I had to make it. Um, and I had to be very like, creative in how I got to the things that I wanted. Um, so I had my, like if I wanted something, I just, I couldn't just go and buy it. I couldn't just ask my parents to get it for me. Um, so the, the, I started working when I was 12 in my father's office in the summers. I would replace his secretary when she was away on summer holidays. 
And um, then after that, when I was 13, I was at the cupcake shop and it was Valentine's Day and they were starting to call people to cancel their orders because they didn't have enough people to send the boxes of cupcakes for Valentine's Day. So they were just calling their customers and saying, I'm sorry, we can't make it. Um, so I went to the person who owned the shop and I said, it's fine, I'll take them. It's okay, just give them to me. And she gave me these like seven boxes and obviously like I didn't have a car. So I took the public transport, like I took the bus to take them from one address to the other to the, like took all of the boxes and then went back. And she, the owner of the cupcake shop was like, oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much for doing that. What can we do to repay you? And I said, well, please give me a job. I really want a job. Um, and I've been this height. I'm one meter 80 since the fourth grade. I've always been very tall. Um, so I didn't look 13, but I, I confessed my secret. She was like, but we can't legally hire you, blah, blah, blah. And I said, please, I'll come really early. No one's going to do a check if it's that early. Like the, you know, the, I don't know what they're called, like the people that regulate whether children work in shops. Um, and she gave me a job in the cupcake shop and that was great because I had my own money and then I could, and I used them for German classes because I wasn't doing super well in the German classes at school. And I felt really so, wait. You were doing that every day, or proud. Just the weekend? No, just in the in the mornings before school. Okay. Yeah, before because I my school started at eight twenty, and the cupcake shop uh, could open at four thirty. So then I could have that time to go and do the initial batter, uh, do the first batch of cupcakes, let them. Uh, so wait, what time would you go to the cupcake like shop? Like four, four fifteen, something like that. Wow. Just let thirteen year old. Yeah, but that was, it was exactly what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted a job. I want to be independent. Like, I want to make my own decisions. It was great. I loved every minute of it. And then also, it was just so cool to go to school and say, yeah, I just had to work. I just am <laughs> coming back from my job. Um, what did your friends think? I mean, <laughs> I was always an odd child, I think. No, I mean, people thought it was like just a weird Valentina thing. Now she works in a cupcake shop. Um, but it was awesome because all of a sudden I had like financial independence and I could choose what I wanted to spend my money on. As, as I said, I was the worst person in my German class. We had two people who were German in my German class and I'm also very competitive and I thought that's so unfair. They have an unfair competitive advantage. They're so much better than me in Ger at German and they keep getting the best grades. I'm going to go and like sign myself with this really complicated German class use my money, and then I'm going to go back and be like, ha, ha, I'm doing better than you at the German test. Anyway, that was like, growing up in Bulgaria, um, yes, I got the highest, I got C2. You have the European system, which is A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2, and I got C2 from the Giotte Institute. And what did the Germans get? I think they were, they got something lower, but they were struggling with the, because German grammar is very difficult, like there's lots of rules that you have to remember, and um, being a native speaker doesn't always save you from making grammar mistakes. But anyway, that was cool. Um, and yeah, just growing up in the way that I did, my parents gave me lots of freedom. I was never told I have to do this or that. Um, I didn't have what a did curfew. Uh, my mother is a bank clerk and my father is, um, he had like lots of small businesses. He's, so he ran his own. He's much older. He's um he's retired now. But he ran his own businesses. Mm, like, it wouldn't really, like, cafes and like little, like corner shops and things. Sure. Yeah. 
just from one thing to the next. My father was very interesting. Like he studied uh, movie making in the communist years. He was a movie director uh, in the communist years in Bulgaria, and so he was employed by the state. And then the Berlin Wall fell, and the communist regime was no longer in power, so he didn't have a job. So he started doing like lots of small jobs, like being a taxi driver, like teaching people German to make money, and he like sold nylon bags, like just really weird stuff. Um, Quite entrepreneurial. He made made his way. Uh, but yeah, my parents raised me with a lot of freedom. I didn't have a curfew. I could do whatever I want, read whatever brothers I want. Brothers and sisters? Had, I have lots of brothers and sisters. I'm child number four out of six. Yes. My, parent, my father had... Uh, my mother is wife number three. Um, but anyway, lots of freedom. And that gave me... Like, taught me how to be very responsible, but also just allowed me to do whatever I want. And they were... Like, I always grew... And I still have this feeling of just thinking, like, yeah, what's the... Like, I don't have an appreciation for limits. Like, of my own energy, of what can be achieved. I just think, let's just try it. <laughs> Anything is possible. Yeah. And that competitive streak, shall we say? Like, I love that story about... 4 a.m. Uh, cupcake to raise money to beat the Germans at the German test. Yeah. That's great. That was important for me then. <laughs> where, where do you think that's from? That's from brother or sister rivalry? This is just... I think um, your I was a typical Eastern European... Like Eastern European parents will never tell you that you've done something right. You can win the... Like be the king of the world or the queen of the world... And like it's still not good enough, so that sets the bar constantly higher and higher and higher and higher, and you constantly need to reach higher and higher and higher. And interestingly, later when I started working and um, when I had my first like, managers, the people that I performed the best with were those who were never appreciative, were always cranky, never happy. Everyone else thought, "Who is this like?" Can I say can I say a bad word on this of podcast? Course. Like who is this, this asshole? Is <laughs> Who's this asshole? Like, oh my god, I hate him. And I was like, I love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's never happy. <laughs> Always wants more. Is actively cranky all the time. Says these unrealistic deadlines and has unrealistic expectations that always like really motivated me. Okay. Yeah. Good insight. <laughs> and um, so when did you move to the move to London? I moved to London. My university uh, gave me a scholarship um, in the January 2014 um, to do a degree in law and economics. I went to the University of Buckingham and they also gave me the freedom to do my degree in two years rather than three. Um, and I thought that was great because I was saving on rent. Um, I stayed I did my finished my degree and I did really well in my first degree, so they gave me a scholarship for a master's program, um, and I did the master's in um, international trade and commercial law. And I never really wanted to be a lawyer or practice law, but um, they gave me a scholarship to any master's program I wanted, and the LLM, the law one, was the most expensive one. So I thought, okay, that's money best spent. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll do the master's in law. <laughs> So random. Uh, but I loved it. I love British law. I actually miss British law sometimes because it's so structured and principled and 
it evolves with morals and with societal norms changing and it's based on precedents and I, I love British law. It's such an interesting structure. I'm, I'm very surprised. When I first came to the UK, it was the coolest country to go to. And now, like, everyone, in all of my friends in Bulgaria are like, oh, why are you still in Britain? Isn't it so strange? Brexit, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, like, we, I used to love watching Parliament. I used to think that's, like, so interesting with the two sides having an argument that's really well researched and, like, masters of debate. And now I can't bring myself to watch the BBC Parliament broadcast because it's so, yeah. But I have faith the UK will come back to its glory. Well, you're setting up your factory here. Yeah, yeah, I'm setting up my factory here. That's Don't tell my testament. Eastern European friends. Everyone's really sure. Testament to Brexit. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And just so with our report that's coming out, New Normal, mm-hmm. is, you know, touching on a lot of these uh, points around political instability, yeah. um, you know, social divides, environmental challenges, and... You know the broader behaviors that are really you know changing consumer you know, uh, consumer outlook or consumer purchase decisions and where how do you sort of trying to pull some of those different behaviors together how are you seeing that manifest and obviously in your product is is is, is the truest manifestation of that but I think in, in more of a broader sort of societal level you know, yeah. what is currently happening in London, which is, I mean, it's crazy mm. in, in any any level. But to us, that's, you know, why we're calling it the new normal. Like, this is, this is not going to change. Like, this is, for better or for mm. worse, this is what we have. Mm. And, you know, we're always keen, you know, it's, it's the so what, right? Mm. Like, this is happening. So what, mm. like, what's, what, what is the repercussion and what's going to come off the back of it? Mm. Yeah, we'd love to get your thoughts on, so I on, tend on to be broader drivers and more about what's the output. I tend to be over-optimistic about things. I think you need to be over-optimistic to start companies, otherwise you just <laughs> won't get out of bed. Um, but I, I have a lot of faith that the world will create a new normal that will be much better than what we've had before. And what I really hope that it is, particularly in the UK, but also globally, I think there's one political movement that's missing, and that's a political movement that understands business and entrepreneurship and how basic economic principles of supply and demand work and does not um, try and spread these populist ideas around banning private schools or um, nationalizing energy or telecoms. Like I come from a country that's, is a perfect example of why you shouldn't have all public education, healthcare, um, and in general, a massive role of the state in people's affairs. Um, and at the same, on, on the other side, you have um, the people that say they care about the environment and they care about social rights, and that's typically perceived as the left. What I'm really missing are people that really understand sound economic principles and the value of entrepreneurship and the responsibilities that businesses should take on 
for themselves to be drivers for social change and at the same time have a lot of empathy for social issues and have a lot of empathy for the environment and, and the massive issues that we're facing with protecting the environment and with reversing climate change. But I don't think it's the state that will be the solution to these problems. Like I don't think that the state will solve income inequality or the lack of adequate access to healthcare for everyone um, or environmental issues. Like it's obviously not the state. I really think it should be to business to take it upon themselves and for consumers to vote with their pounds or dollars or other currencies and support those companies who are taking it on themselves to be drivers of positive social change. And I really want they to be an example of that. So the way that we look after our people, days we have paid maternity and paternity leave for everyone that's been with us for over 24 months. Um, we carbon offset the organization. Uh, we have health insurance for everyone that's part of the company, even though we're like one year old, right? Like, it's basic principles that should exist. Um, and how we're trying to like play our small part in social injustices and social class differentials. Um, we're working with a charity called Working Chance, which gives people that used to be part of the prison system um, an opportunity to get back into work. And we've identified that women over 50 that used to be part of the prison system are the most likely to be unemployed in the UK right now. So we actively seek out those profiles and we offer them a job in our pilot manufacturing. We have two people that are working in our pilot manufacturing that are part of Working Chance right now who used to be in the prison system who are now employed day um, and obviously our product is aiming constantly to be as environmentally sustainable as possible in the packaging that we use in the fibers that we use in its material composition in the way that it's put together uh, making sure that we source locally as much as possible and we eliminate as, as many kind of travel costs as possible um, but yeah, I really, the, the one thing that I'm missing from like the global debate about what's wrong with the world right now, whether it's environmental, social issues, economic issues, is someone to get up and say, I don't think that people should be taxed 70%. I don't think the businesses should be taxed 60%. I think the businesses should live up to the promises that they're making and actually do that social change themselves because I strongly believe that the government is a very inefficient way of solving any problems at all. Valentina for Prime Minister? No. no. <laughs> Sorry, not up for the job. <laughs> I mean, I'm fully subscribed to that and um, yeah, incredibly well articulated in terms of the challenges that are faced all of us, but more importantly, what are the solutions and, and I think it obviously testament to your, you know, attitude and uh, your abilities sort of leading by the front and you know creating products or creating companies creating workplaces creating you know opportunities uh you know these are businesses after all these are for profits yep. after all but with purpose yeah and uh you know the number of parallels and you know, other companies that are coming through that i think subscribe to that and share that and <clears throat> so to us advocating modern working principles yeah. And in the UK in particular, like there's such a strong historical precedent of 
classical liberalism, but in a very like authentic form, not in the form that says, well, I don't care about society, I'm only there to make profits. Um, in a form that, you know, do, even during Victorian times, arguably the most conservative times that existed on planet Earth, um, society used to give 15% of its income on average to charity. And there were so many charities in Victorian time. You had the charities for fallen women, the charities for, um, I mean, a lot of them are very politically incorrectly worded from today's perspective, um, but uh, charities for um, people that had gender, uh, that perceived themselves as a different gender. There were charities for homeless um, animals. Um, so I think there's a very strong precedent in the UK for how the private sector and people can take on the responsibility to solve the problems that matter to them by themselves rather than always ask someone else to do it or rely on this big, lofty idea of the government to solve it. You're B Corp? Uh, we're in the process of becoming certified as a B Corp. It takes about a year to get certified. We've started the process. Yeah, yeah, it's great. We hold ourselves to the principles, but we don't have the certificate yet. Question around the challenges and uh, your road and your story is still quite young mm-hmm. very young but you're maybe touching on some of those early challenges you faced uh, getting getting day this far manufacturing was a very big challenge um being taken seriously in an industry that's so deeply entrenched and there's a certain way of doing things and people are not willing to budge in the tampon manufacturing industry Fundraising was a very big challenge. Just quickly, so what's the solution to that? To, to my, it's persistence. The solution to every to, solution to everything is persistence. There's not a problem that can be solved if you just persevere and stick at it. I really believe that there will always be a solution, and I'm daily super impressed with like the crazy solutions which we're coming up a day to solve from the most difficult to the most basic problems. I think perseverance is the answer to everything. So that's what happened to us when we persevered with manufacturing contacts we just finally through knocking on a million doors convinced someone to start pilot manufacturing our products so that we could present it to people and start clinically testing it and show it to investors um and then we brought manufacturing in-house okay yeah and then investment as you say yeah fundraising was very difficult um i didn't because I've never raised money before. I've never been a founder before. I had a full-time job when I was fundraising, so I didn't tick any of the boxes in terms of where I was educated or where I used to work. Like I don't have a like, quote-unquote good pedigree, and I also have an accent, and like <laughs> it was just the worst. And um, people are still very uncomfortable when I talk to them about like vaginal canals and absorption through the mucous membrane and tampons in general like most VCs are guys and I could just see how they were like trying to hide under the table to just avoid eye contact and always try and get me out of the door just as quickly as possible just so that they wouldn't feel as awkward as they were now Um, but now I'm proud to say we have uh, probably the most diverse board ever we have three women on our board um, and one man of investors. Um, yeah, so that was difficult to begin with learning. Everyone used to ask me, like, you keep talking about the environment, you keep talking about um, how you're going to, because um, I was also then thinking that maybe we should own our hemp fields and then give uh, people who used to be sexually trafficked um, 
a job on our hemp fields because it's therapeutic to work with land, but at the same time, it's very difficult to get reinstated back into society when you've been through trauma like that. And there's no programs in Europe um, to help women who used to be victims of sexual trafficking get back into society. And that's why there's such a high rate of women that were sexually trafficked going back into prostitution or sexual trafficking. Um, and everyone you say, like, what, is this some kind of an NGO? Like, is this some kind of a charity? What's the business model here? Like, there's nothing to stop talking about the environment. Um, but then slowly I learned how to speak to investors and was able to, to fundraise. But that was a pain. And it's, it's also, it's very, it hurts your ego, right? Hearing so many, like 200 people tell you that's a stupid idea and you're the wrong person for it. Get up again. Yeah. Pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah. Coming back to the stigma attached to uh, you know, female, male conversations around mm -hmm. tampons and how, how are you seeing that changing? I, I, I'm not seeing anything actively change right now. Um, but I did notice that if you stay with people throughout the initial 15 minutes of embarrassment and feeling uncomfortable and if you keep like a very straight face and you don't show like even the beginnings of a smile then they take you seriously and then the, they're past the discomfort zone and then they start asking questions so something that happened to me was when I was fundraising I was meeting all of these guy investors that were initially very uncomfortable then I would learn to like not break eye contact and be like very serious about what I was saying that would get them through the initial 15 minutes of embarrassment and then they would start asking all of these questions like oh, but how many tampons do you change per day? What happens? How do you throw the tampon away? What's an applicator? Just all of these. I was like, wow, you really don't know, do you? Like, you've never thought about this. Um, and people were genuinely, like, men that I was speaking with, the men that I'm still speaking with about women's health were genuinely very interested to learn more once they were past the, oh, this is so uncomfortable stage. So there's hope. I think that no, a hundred percent. There's definitely hope, and um, in the same and way, your mention of the um, coming back to stalking and planning organic, and forty percent of the customers oh, yeah. were male. Yeah, yeah. Is that that was so funny? They would always spend your, the longest time in that, front of the aisle. Is that your? Is that considered in your offering and your product? Yeah. So we, in the way that we talk about women's health, in the events that we host, um, on our waiting list. We don't want to be gender siloed. We don't want to be a company that only talks to women. Women's health is an issue that everyone should be on board with in the same way that women know about prostate cancer and are very much aware about the movement for awareness for prostate cancer. The same respect should be paid to women's health. Um, and I think, yeah, I, it really matters to me that we don't only have these conversations behind closed doors, behind, you know, in between whispers um, in the women's bathroom, I think we should be having them super comfortably between genders. What's your thoughts then on like Albright and the wing and sort of gender specific female only uh, clubs? Um, I think, I think there, there's definitely, there, I see why they exist. Um, it wasn't, it hasn't always been easy for women to say openly that they're interested in advancing their career or say openly that they're starting a business or uh, 
even female friendship for so long used to be portrayed as only being like a fake in media and in books and movies as being like a fake friendship that would always break apart when a guy came in and inevitably became the love interest conflict between the two women. So I think the role of Albright and places like The Wing, I can see why they started, I can see the people that they're serving, but in terms of where they will evolve, um, I, I think guys should be invited to the conversation. It's the only way to win, being inclusive. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. But as I said, I have a lot of respect for the organizations that were there when women needed to have a safe yeah, space no, to express themselves. And like, you didn't have, like, even at work, uh, the, for, for a long time, women saw each other as like competitors. When you were colleagues with another woman, you would compete. So I can see why that space was needed. Yeah, and things need to change. Yeah. And they are, which mm -hmm. is great. A couple of final questions. Uh, what's the best way of someone contacting you? Um, hello at yourday.com. <laughs> Great. You read those? Oh, of course, I read everything. Yeah. I read all of our Instagram, <laughs> intercom. I still respond to all of our intercom, most of our intercom and like Instagram and Twitter and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Great. And who would you like to hear on the show? Hmm. Um, do you know Michelle Kennedy from Peanut? No. She's amazing. She's really great. She's my founder soulmate. She's so inspiring. Have her on the podcast. She raised a series A while I don't know how many months pregnant. And before that had a brilliant, brilliant career and had a really important role in Bumble. Um, and now she has this really cool app called Peanut, uh, which is a social networking platform for mothers you know postnatal depression and maternal loneliness are such real issues particularly in the urban communities in which we live in and also women are no longer having children at the same time you're no longer having these cohorts of women that went to college together and now they're having babies together and they all live in the suburbs together so being a mom can be so isolating which reflects on the relationship that you have with your children and Michelle is solving that problem in a beautiful just super well executed way and like she inspires me a lot great Valentina thank you so much oh, thank it's you it's been great chatting this was like therapy it's <laughs> <laughs> not the intention <laughs> uh, but yeah wish you all success in the future Thanks. day same lots of success to protein <laughs>